Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 184. My guest for today's episode called in from Australia. I'm really making the, <laughs> making the rounds around the world here during the pandemic. His name is Bo Miles, and he's an adventurer, an educator, a filmmaker, and a storyteller. He has a really fantastic YouTube channel, so I'm going to ask that you go to the show notes for this so that you can check out all of his incredible movies and videos and content. The first one I had ever seen was a video of him. It's a shortish doc trying to kayak around the entire southern tip of Africa. And immediately I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is a guy that I want to talk to. And then when I went a little deeper into his content, he's, he's ran <laughs> between 40 and 70 kilometers a day through the Australian Alps. He's got this really cool video about him running a marathon throughout the course of a day. So he runs one mile every hour, and then he spends the rest of the time in that hour doing things, gardening, building things, cooking. And it was a way to show that you have a ton of time in a day to accomplish a lot of things. He accomplished more in that day than some people accomplish in a week. So I think you're starting to see really unique ideas. He went 40 days only eating beans, different types of beans out of cans. So these are all things that I find incredibly interesting. So reached out to Bo. He was super kind and right away was like, yep, we'll do it. And we linked up today. We talked about some of those stories. I mean, he's got so many adventures that I'm going to tell you again, go follow the links, check his stuff out. You're not going anywhere anyway right now. You're at home. Go check out some of his videos. Give him a follow. Give him some likes and stuff like that. Really fascinating guy. Deeply inspiring to me. It's like, I doubt he's that much older than me, but I want to be <laughs> Bo Miles when I grow up. Or when I grow up in my next lifetime. Who knows? So check that stuff out. Also go to the show notes for the link to my Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash the voyages Tim Vetter. And I got some cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers and stuff like that. Would greatly appreciate that. If you like this episode or if you like any episode, you can also just share that, that love and that joy with other people, let them know about it, and we'll spread this virally that way. Maybe that's not the best thing to say during a pandemic. How have I not thought of that? in like five months of doing this. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. Enjoy this conversation with Bo Miles. All right, sweet. Well, uh, again, man, thank you so much for doing this. This is a, it's a real, it's a, it's an honor for me. Like we've been, you know, we've been in the epicenter of what's been going on lately and we we don't get out much, so I kind of live vicariously through uh, other people's travels and things like that. And uh, your videos and, and your your stories are really inspiring. So uh, it's really cool to get to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Nice to, ch to talk to a um, a New Yorker. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a native New Yorker, but I yeah. And uh, would you consider is New York a maritime state? Would that be considered New England, or is that further north? Mm. No, New England's more, yeah, like Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. Uh, I don't nice, know if Rhode yeah. Island counts, but yeah. Yeah, cool. How uh, how have you been affected by the pandemic? I know you're you're in a bit more of a rural setting. Well, it was it was really uh, sort of a non-event for the first wave, or for mm -hmm. the first sort of March through to May, um, and then you know Australia virtually. We didn't eradicate it, but we got mighty close. And then all of a sudden there's been a big bloom again from when they brought back a lot of Australians, repatriated them, they put them in hotels and they didn't do it properly enough. You know, mm. the security guards were lax and whatnot. And they just, so Victoria now I'm at the epicentre, or at least my main city is at the epicentre of a huge second wave outbreak, or huge for us anyway. So well, we've only had, you know, 
300 odd deaths in Australia, which is tragic, but not like the US, you know. Um, and yeah, I'm out in the country, so relatively unaffected by it. And I'm on acreage, so I can, you know, it's, life just goes on like a pretty normal thing out here, you know. Uh, but, uh, I'm jealous, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's still a strange new world, hey? Yeah. You're also, I mean, like the professional version of, I don't know if it's weird to say professional, like the, what you would put on your LinkedIn profile, right? Like you, you're a professor. Is that true? Yeah. Well, not a professor. I've got, I'm a, I'm a doctor of um, philosophy and I've got, uh, my background is in outdoor education and adventure ideology, I suppose you'd say. Um, expeditionary learning is really my thing. That's what I did uh, my PhD on. But a professor over here is, is someone who's, who's the top dog of an academic, you know, they've been a doctor for 30 years. They've got lots of books, lots of research, and they're generally the top tier of the, the university. Whereas I was the junior, <laughs> uh, which was fine with me because it means I didn't have to write as much and I could be out in the field. But uh, yeah, I'm an academic or at least was, I haven't been for six months. I'm now writing full time and making films. So I'm living the dream, mate, and sort of switching to the, to the left a bit. I uh, got you. But but prior you were would you uh, like take students on expeditions and like outdoor sort of skills types of things? Yeah, yeah, did uh, it for twelve years at university level, and before that, ten years at summer camp level and various other capacities over in Vermont um, in the U.S. Uh, which is, in many respects, that was my breeding ground for good teaching. You know, you got to be a good teacher with. Um, with young kids and the older kids are easier because they're paying to be there. You know, a 20 year old is paying to be there, but a, a, a 10 or 12 year old who's only just interested in what you're doing, you've got to really bring your A game, you know? So I think I learned a lot. I, I, I did learn a lot in the U S I mean, my perspective of, uh, Australian wilderness and wildlife is, is colored a lot by like the media I've seen. Cause I haven't been to Australia but there's a, a lot of stuff that seems really scary. Um, a lot of like dangerous spiders and snakes and things like that. Is, is that part of like what you would teach kids sort of like, uh, I don't know if it's like first well, aid or. Well, I remember, I remember his name was, um, she, not Gavin Wellstead, Gavin something, young kid, 10 years old. And he taught me more about New England forest than I knew about Australian forest. You know, he's, he's this kid that was an encyclopedia of what plant that was and what lizard that was and how not to touch a salamander and, you know, that's poison <laughs> ivy and that's not. And, and uh, he had an amazing knowledge of, um, of, of America, really. Um, and my version of Australia, my knowledge of Australia is pretty good, you know, but it's, um, it's, it's taken a long time to get here and it needs to be a lot better too. If I was to go out and live off country, then, uh, Gee, I'd have to really sharpen my tool set. But, um, yeah, look, it's, it's, we're an iconic poisonous country, but it's, you just don't see it much. You know, I'm out a lot, right? You know, I run four days a week in the forest, and I've seen four snakes in 20 years whilst in that particular patch of forest, and there'd be millions of them in there, but they just stay away, you know, and, and spiders are a bit the same, and just you'd just be smart about things. Yeah, I guess it's like like most things, it's largely overblown. Then, um, oh, totally, mate. You know, the whole whenever I'm paddling in tropical waters, I'm going to get bonged on the head by a coconut more than I'm going to get <laughs> eaten by a shark. Um, and so, and there's plenty of statistics like that. That you know, it's kind of this this fear factor that's um, irrational. You know, I, I I had that like as the first thing in my notes to ask you about. Um, like when, when you were a kid and, and what sort of fostered your interest in the outdoors and also like what maybe got you interested in storytelling and filmmaking? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm still pondering that myself, you know, where does all this come from in terms of what we do in life and why tell stories, you know, to be a storyteller, you've got to be, um, there's a fair sense of ego, you know, why is my story worth telling in a sense? Uh, but I also know too that we're all storytellers and you either do it to your best mate or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your mum, or you do it to a larger audience. We're always telling stories, right? So, um, I got a kind of a kick out of seeing other people that you'll never meet, watch your story and engage with it. You know, that's why you and I are talking now because there's this thing online that you've watched and engaged with and thought, Oh, he'd be worth having a conversation with. That's pretty cool. You know, um, in terms of my childhood and, and where, uh, I don't know, I think I've kind of uh, accumulated or, or sort of groomed this sort of storyteller bow, my version of myself, then, you know, my folks were 
being indoors as during the daytime as a kid was kind of contraband. Don't go inside during the day. So I was very much an outdoor kid, like I think a lot of Australians. We've got a good climate to be that way. Um, and so, yeah, I was just an outdoor kid. And, you know, I was, I was a pretty underwhelming sort of teenager. I, I was never as ambitious as I am now. Um, so I think I'm sort of making up for lost ground. Yeah, I wrote down a quote here uh, from one of the the Bass Strait videos, and I'm going to like get to that uh, that project in a little bit. But you said um, when you were you were planning for the trip, and I think you were using something with like radar or like echolocation or something, and you said uh, kids never do this when they want to climb a tree; they just go and climb a tree. I've got to find an adult version of that. And I thought that was like uh, such a perfect description of the things that you do because I'm I'm watching some of these like spending a night up in a tree and it reminds me of being a kid and I'm watching Indiana Jones or when you're making things with your hands, it's like very much like MacGyver and you've turned these things into uh, an adult lifestyle, which is like the holy grail of what you would imagine when you were a kid. Like when when you were young, did you always know that maybe like the sort of uh, like white collar shirt and tie type of trajectory was not right for you? Well, the, the trouble is I, um, I did enjoy office life to a degree. You know, I loved the team that was around me. I liked the challenge. You know, I was quite challenged at university level because natively I'm not that way inclined. I don't want to sit down and, and write and be on emails all day. Mm. And yet I didn't mind that sort of habit of that and, and the sort of, you know, the routine of having a job and a paycheck, it was good. But um, ultimately it kind of wears you down, particularly when if you become pretty good at that job and, and it's not really seen as something worthwhile. You know, we, we were good outdoor educators. We were good at what we did. Um, but that wasn't good enough for university because it didn't translate into enough research or research dollars. Mm. And, and that, you know, that's not necessarily bad blood because it's a great university and they were great people. But yeah, look, I'm really glad I'm back here now living at the farm, being a dad, my, my 10 month old daughter's finding holes in my socks as I spend playing <laughs> with my big toes. <laughs> you know, it's really, I've got a really good life going on and I've, I almost thank for my redundancy and thank the people that made me a non-office worker. Um, but yeah, mate, you're right. I'm living the dream, and, and uh, I am doing what my ten-year-old self would have loved me to do. Yeah, I, I, there's another quote I wrote down where you said, "I've always been attracted to like a Robinson Crusoe type of life." Um, yeah, I, I'm envious of it. I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to to also get to that point. Um, you yeah, know, washing up on. I mean, Bass Strait was very much like that. So was Africa. You know, there was some. There were days in particularly the Mozambique coast, which was more wild and no roads. There's, there's no towns on the Mozambique coast. They've sort of, but I'm not sure why. There's a lot of lagoons, so they've just set more inland. And so there's just, you wash up on a patch of coast and you see one little fisherman in a little, in a little hut and he doesn't speak English and you don't speak Portuguese and it's fantastic, you know, and you might trade in some of your medicines or a towel you haven't used for a couple of coconuts or a fish. Um... Yeah, that that is, that is priceless. And there was a little bit of that in Bass Fly Kayak in that there's, you go to these little islands in the middle of Bass Strait and one of them had a caretaker on it or a, a couple um, and the rest, they're just these little islands on, lives on, you know, they're magnificent. And, of course, you wash up there with all your Gore-Tex and your fancy equipment and all this stuff and I would love to strip that back fundamentally. I'd love to go back to Africa for a second because that was the first video I had seen. And, and right away I watched that and I was like, holy shit, I have to reach out to him. Um, this was a couple months back. And I've since then like caught up on a lot of the other projects and videos that you've done. But I'm like infinitely curious about this. And I know I'll send everyone to the videos so that they can get the full picture. But can you talk about how that came to be? Uh, why Africa? Why the southern tip of Africa? Well, it's a, yeah, I, I did my first solo sea kayak trip um, across some island chains in the southern half of Australia. And I went on this big road trip and paddled these islands. And, you know, it was a fairly unsuccessful trip in a sense that I didn't get as far as I wanted to go. But I did enough to sort of get a real taste for how good sea kayaking is and how far it can take you. You know, on a good day, you can paddle 40 or 50 kilometres and you can go from one island to the next or mainland to an island. 
and and you feel you know it's a very empowering form of transport. It's brilliant, and so I thought, okay, how do I supersize this idea? And I know that a lot of people hadn't paddled South Africa, or a lot of the locals didn't, or if they did, they didn't do it in an expeditionary form. I'm just I love that she's saying dad, 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 dad. <laughs> um, and so I thought I've got. I'll train up and I'll spend four years and I'll, I didn't want to spend four years. I thought I'd be able to do it in two, turn around the idea in two years, but it took me four years from my Australian trip to get to Africa. And I thought, you know, you look at an atlas and I thought I'm going to paddle from one side to the other via the Tropic of Capricorn, you know, so I start in Mozambique right around the Cape and up towards Namibia. Um, of course it didn't happen. I didn't make it past Cape Town. I ran out of time and money and, and, and energy and kind of my beard was too long at that. Well, I just had to go. <laughs> I just run out of time. But that was the that was the idea. That's where it came from. Were there like I had I was watching you pull up and just camp on the beach, and I was thinking like, how does somebody just uh, you know first of all cross an international boundary, but second of all like just sort of roll up on a country without anybody stopping you? Did you have to arrange for visas? Was there like maritime police or anything like that? Yeah, there was a few few cock-ups on my part. And, and naivety gets you everywhere in some respects. That's why young people doing adventures is excellent because they, they know no knows. They, they just think, oh, yeah, I can, if I see this on a map, I can do it, right? Whereas a 40-year-old will come along and go, oh, now what are the problems with this? <laughs> so I turned up and in many respects too, there is nothing wrong with what you're doing. Um, the first big hiccup was that you're not allowed to camp on any Mozambique beach, period. So I'd have to get in suite with the locals wherever I, I would turn up and we would often not set up the tent until after dark and pull it down before first light. In saying that, the beaches aren't policed. Um, and so in many respects, you're kind of very un, you'd be very unlikely to get caught. South Africa was a bit different. You could, in some respects, camp in some parts of the beach or the foreshore. Um, but we'd circumvent that or I'd circumvent that by talking to a local and often just staying in their front yard, which was close to the coast. You know, so I'd take any valuables from my kayak and just do whatever. So you just simplify it and I always live with the mantra, if I'm not doing anyone any harm, then then it should be okay because people generally are pretty good if you tell them your story. So I had a pretty good story by the time I'd um, finished, you know, with why I was there, what I was going to do, what I wasn't going to do, you know. So what drives you for things like that? Um, is it is it the storytelling and, and to make the video? Is there is there something physical and mental that's going on that drives you to do this stuff? Well, to be honest, you know, that was a 20-something-year-old bow wanting to do his big heroic adventure. You know, I've been reading hero tales or adventure tales my whole life about people conquering mountains or conquering seas. And I thought, while I'm young and fit and strong and stupid enough, I want to be able to go and do one of these big trips and stamp your name in the adventure world. That's what I thought that would do and be. Uh, and, of course, I don't think it was, and mainly because I felt it was an unsuccess. Even though the trip was relatively, you know, I'd still gone a bunch of distance and um, I'd suffered enough, I think, um, which I thought was a vital ingredient ingredients of adventure, you know. So there was multiple sort of forms of ego going on uh, as that young man, and I still very much have that, but I've shifted it to a, a different kind of, a different form, uh, which is shorter, more sustainable, and you know what, more fun. Yeah, you're sort of the, um, you're the guinea pig in a lot of what you do. Uh, I wanted to, and I know you've done some some like press on this over in Australia, but I'd love for you to uh, to share the story behind uh, forty days of of eating eating nothing but beans. Yeah, well, that's kind of you know I, I think fundamentally you know I'm a flawed character like like so many humans. Um, well, not all flawed, I suppose, but I certainly am. And one of my and yet one of my sort of strengths, I suppose, beyond my flaws, is um, that I've got a good physical constitution. I can kind of beat myself up with a run or a paddle or, or eating. I can eat anything. I'm like a billy goat, you know? So I thought, why don't I do an experiment on food rather than going for a long run or a paddle? And it's a real adventure of, of the internal self in a way, you know? If, I, if I'm not running across a mountain, why don't you sort of take that kind of um, hardship to your internal insides? So let's just give it beans for 40 days. 
So inspired by a, you know, a passage in a Steinbeck book, I thought I'll just eat beans. And I ended up doing tin beans, which a lot of people gave me heck for, but they were mostly good, good beans. And um, it really gave me an insight into what we're capable of by what we eat, which we all know, but we often don't know in such intimate way is when we really challenge it. You know, it's not just a diet, it's a full-on reduction of all this complexity that we generally eat. So it was fascinating. Yeah, I would imagine at some point, like the pleasure of eating must go away and it just simply becomes about fuel. Well, you know, I am very utilitarian with what I eat. Uh, I'm fairly, you know, I'm very practical and I have a very simple palate. You know, I don't mind plain food. I think it's tasty. I think it really tastes good. And taste is a very perceptive thing and I, I sort of like playing with that idea. But in saying that, I never got sick of beans. I'm still not sick of beans. Um, and the actual day-to-day of just eating five or six tins of beans or four sometimes was really great. I had this really simplistic way of, of just eating basically. It was excellent. Um, what I did miss in the end, though, was, was the, the supercharged calories and just the way food makes you feel, not necessarily the act of eating itself. So that was... That was something that was I kind of engaged with was um, the fact that I don't really miss the eating side of things. I miss what it gives you. Yeah, I don't remember if you did anything like uh, like a blood test or a checkup before and after. Did you do anything like that to see the actual? Like- I did, yeah. I, and I just answered someone's. I get constantly asked what were their blood results because I mentioned it in the introduction of the film. Um, but it was really unstaggering in a sense. I was huh. a really healthy dude at the end of it, other than my B12 dive bombed, which is probably why I was feeling so bad and my energy was poor as well because I was only on probably half the amount no of me. calories I'm used to. Yeah. But so did my cholesterol. So I had one good and one bad thing dive bomb in a sense. I see, yeah. No animal protein, I guess, would do that. Yeah, and so, but the, everything else was staggeringly similar. You know, I had a set of blood results, a full workup, several months before, midway, and then uh, afterwards. And, yeah, that's what it revealed. Do you ever waste time? Do I waste time? Yeah. Well, my wife has recently uh, got us Netflix, so (laughs) I have wasted my time quite recently. Um, So we've we've binge-watched a few things. In saying that, we'll probably only watch an hour a day, Um, and it's a nice come down and something that's good TV, but... Fundamentally, it's a, you know, I don't need it. <laughs> we haven't had TV for 10 months and we don't, we're not big TV watchers anyway. Uh, beyond that, I try not to waste time, but it's that once again, you know, is sitting, is sitting with my daughter out on the lawn while she plays, me just staring off into oblivion for half an hour. Is that a waste of time or is it good? Mm. So, you know, I, I, I constantly ask, you know, what is a waste of time and what is not? Yeah, and I mean that maybe I meant that like non-judgmentally. I'm actually really impressed uh, by what you're able to accomplish. And you had a really awesome f- uh, short film about a day when where you ran a mile an hour. So you did a marathon throughout the day, and then you spent a lot of the rest of those hours trying to accomplish as as much as you could. And it made me feel incredibly lazy and I don't know <laughs> I don't know if that's what your mission was to maybe show people what they're capable of doing in a day or so yeah well that's just it I, I never really set out to prove anyone to be lazy or to prove myself busy mm. uh, in a sense I just go out to make a story and then people can take from it what they like you know um, that's had a big response across the world because I think I, I don't make films to be judgmental, really. I, I just, this is my story and this is what I'm going to do. And I don't come up with a hit list of why I think you can improve your life at the end of it or someone else who watches it. Um, and th- look, that was really just a response because I'd got a bit fat and I'd sat around for years writing my PhD and I just wanted to get outside more and I thought I'll, I'll supersize it with this idea which had percolated through the PhD process. But, you know, just get outside and do whatever you can and then come back in and write. Um, I, I suppose what you're alluding to as well and what is, I'm really proud of about myself and maybe just because I'm, I've got so many wonderful stimulation things around me, you know, I've got a barn full of things, a great little property, 
a, a beautiful little family. I'm, I'm constantly busy in a sense, but I, what I'm proud of is that I'm never bored. I'm never bored, ever. Mm. Uh, I'm just, it just doesn't, I can never be bored. It's, um, there's something always interesting about the world that's in my immediate vicinity or beyond the horizon or wherever. There's always something to do or think about or, or do next. Um, I'm not a very good sick person, but other than that, you know, I, I do I do tend to be a bloody cage lion when I'm sick, but otherwise I'm working on that. What's the process between when an idea is existing in your head and when it becomes, when it seems like it might be a reality to something that could make a successful film, if that question makes sense? Yeah, look, ideas are cheap, Tim, so that's the, that's the trouble. I have probably... Um, <laughs> For every 10 ideas I have, and I often put them down in a script or a, you know, a Google document that I share with a few people, uh, my wife and my business partner essentially, or my co-producer. And so if it doesn't get past them uh, or can't be massaged by them, it just dies. <laughs> but in any case, I, I write down these ideas that I have and one in 10 gets up and, and then you've still got to massage it to make a story out of it because a st- an idea is all very well, but it still needs legs to be a 10 or a 15 minute film. Um, they always come to me because, because I'm doing lots of odds and sods. I'm, I'm not a specialist anymore. I don't think, I don't, well, I'm not even sure I've ever been a specialist. I like the idea of being many things in a good capacity and not something that's just one thing or someone who's just one thing. I think it's flawed. So yeah, I have a really, uh, you know, I have a great life of breath and I try and put that into story form. Yeah, I could definitely see, like you mentioned Netflix. I, I don't know if anyone's ever reached out to you for something like this, but I could see, I think what what you do works really well in in sort of like the, I don't know if it, you want to call it short form documentary because, you know, there's documentaries that are five minutes, but something like episodic maybe, like where each episode would be a different project or an adventure or a task, like have has that thought ever occurred to you? Has anyone reached out to you to do something like that? Yeah, people have, but it's, they still tend to be dead-end streets, maybe because I probably de- by default kind of put them off. You know, oh. Maybe I don't really want to be that character. I love the freedom of making my own films. It's excellent. You know, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by people I like and I trust creatively and work-wise, you know, and we just go and do our own thing. It's bloody brilliant. You know, we've got this small business that you can create your own kind of Netflix. So why would you go and work for a giant company? In saying that, I don't earn a lot of money. So maybe that's going to, you know, maybe I think that along the path. But then earning money is easy too. I can go back to being a part-time builder or um, Mm. do a little bit of a spot of teaching on the side or some guiding. So if need be, I'll go and do that. I'll go and work for the man in other ways. But there is an exciting project coming up next year, which was announced yesterday, and that's funded by the Australian government or Screen Australia, and that's um, Bad River. I'm going to paddle down Australia's worst rivers episodically, four of the worst rivers in Australia, and, and make adventure films. So that's Whoa. all next year. So uh, that's kind of happening anyway. Worst meaning dangerous? Uh, no, the most polluted or the most... Um, no, not the most dangerous, although in some respects they could be because they're so polluted. You know, one of them is uh, basically just silver water. So you get a splash of that on your lip, you're going to be sick. <laughs> so they're, 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 they were wild rivers, of course, like any river, and they've been completely bastardised by humanity, either by damming or mining or, or climate change or whatever. So I picked four across this sort of spectrum in Australia, and I'll do them in different ways to showcase... Uh, adventure and to showcase how bad they are. That's so wild. How do you prepare? How do like? Can you even adequately prepare for something like that? Yeah. Well, no. I've <laughs> prepared my whole life for it. I, I think you know, in that I, I know how to keep take care of myself to, to enough to be able to do these things from A to B. So that's kind of the thing. I know I've got a good engine when I'm when I say right. I want to. I'm going to start here, and ten days later, I want to be here. I can generally do that. Um, so, and if I don't, there's going to be good reasons why I can't or don't. So that, that'll add to the story. Uh, and so that's kind of, I've taken my whole life to get to the point where I'm comfortable now with going to go attack these four rivers in different ways. And I don't say attack in a kind of, uh, I don't want to verse them. I just want to go and experience them 
and see the goods and the bads that's that's in play and tell that as a story. And I'd imagine something like that as opposed to the Africa trip has more of a team behind it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't film as much myself anymore because it's just so time-consuming and you don't get a good a film. You know, it's just it's static one-dimensional shots of some bloke moving through the shot or talking to camera. So, yeah, I've got a – there'll be two or three cameramen or camera women on that and, like, our, our expedition manager is a woman, so she'll run all of the – She'll run all of the mechanics behind things and then us guys um, and girls will go out and just shoot the heck out of it and try and make the best story possible. Talk to the locals, talk to the miners, talk to the farmers, uh, talk to whoever is contributing to this goodness or badness. Oh, that's so exciting. And that's going to be on like Australian TV or that's going to have some type of international? Uh, no, we're just, I'm, we've been funded in some respects, um, at the big funding bodies have seen the light. They know that the world is now online. And so mm. this is driven for my YouTube channel. They're giving money ah, okay. to make the series and to go to the YouTube channel. And then if it goes to broadcast or goes to Netflix, then so be it. But it starts, It's the money's been put up by YouTube, Google, and the Australian government. So awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Uh, I'm, I, I teach history, or I did teach history, and now I'm, I'm in the world of education. Uh, so I'm really sad to to be honest about the fact that I didn't know exactly geographically where Tasmania was located <laughs> until I was watching your uh, Bass Strait videos. Um, would really love to hear about that project and like how different it is maybe doing a trip like that with other people versus doing a solo trip. Yeah, look, I, I've always been, I've always had people vicariously involved in my trips. It's never been just Bo. In saying that, I, I have spent a lot of time by myself in the journey part of things, mm. um, and I really like that. I love my own company. But in saying that, I didn't want to make Bass Strait by myself. One because of the a little bit about the safety thing, safety in numbers, but I really did want to experience it with others because um, I was kind of sick of myself. I was sick of my own company in some respects. Um, not bored with it, but, uh, you know, you, you, I was sick of sort of tripping over my own ego and making a film series just about Bo. So I would have rather, I thought, I want to narrate this film and narrate this experience on behalf of others and get their input. Um, and so I knew I'd probably enjoy it with the guys that I picked to go across with, uh, with Matt and Dan, but I never knew just how fun it would be. And it was excellent. You know, we really gelled as a trio because we were different. We supported each other in different ways. Uh, and it was fun. It was really good. It was kind of a, um, yeah, it was a new, it's a new era in how I go and see places because I've always done it by myself. Is that like a particularly dangerous route or is it something that you, you picked in terms of like its physical beauty? Well, people do think it's very dangerous. And on a bad day, it's, it's hellish, I imagine. But I would never paddle it in bad days. You'd be silly too. I suppose where the danger comes in is if you pick a good day and that good day goes to bad, uh, or if you if it's just okay and it gets worse, you know. So it's how much you trust the forecasting of the bureau and of global sort of weather watching, which is very good now, uh, and it's only getting better. So you know, there's probably close to 500 crosses that have done it now in the modern era. Um, and it can only explode, a bit like climbing Everest on a good day as opposed to a mm. bad day. It, it can be a very, it, it's very shallow, surrounded by very deep ocean, and so that, yeah, it can, it can get bananas real bad, real quick. Uh, so you don't want to be on the water when things go bad, but um, we just weren't. Yeah, how far out are you usually? And I was thinking about that for Africa too. Well, as a, a sea well, that was essentially a trip of crossings going from mainland Australia to Tasmania. You're just island hopping. So the, okay. the hops are anywhere between 40 and 80 kilometres. So you're doing, you know, sort of 30 to 50 miles or more. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of times where you lose sight of land, uh, especially if it's a bit foggy or a cloud comes in or whatnot. And so you're just going off bearings and dead reckoning. You're sort of trying to judge where the sea is taking you as opposed to, uh, you know, where your boat is heading. <laughs> so you play with all these sort of mechanics of it's a bit of a chess game throughout the day to get to where you want to land in the quickest possible time. Um, whereas Africa was very much you're just trying to iron out, the, 
you know, a shoreline is never straight, ever, really. You know, there's always a kink in it or a headland or a bay or whatever. And so you'll often go from headland to headland or bay to bay. So sometimes in the middle of the day, you're 20 kilometres from land because you're trying to get to the other side, essentially. Uh, which is, it's a real craft. But in, in many respects, the further you are offshore, the safer you are because that's where waves are. The waves are onshore, you know. Wow, yeah, yeah. I guess that does make sense. Uh, I'm really also curious about um, the Australian Alps because uh, I think I maybe saw you, you had a, a photo of this, um, but you said that to do that over the course of two weeks, you were running between 40 and 70 kilometers a day. Yeah, I average 50 kilometers a day, essentially, so God. 35 miles or, or, or some such. I'm just going to go outside, Tim, because the baby's about to go to bed. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, it was – I've never run those kind of distances before, so it was kind of staggering that the body just sort of got on with it. You know, I got to – the first three days were really hard and thought, oh, hell, how can I do this for for so long? How can I do this for another 10 or 12 days? Um but sure enough, it just got used to it, and that and it was it was completely doable, uh, and I and I kind of enjoyed it to an extent too. And was the point of that it was a specific distance you were trying to do, or I think you were the first to do a certain trail? Yeah, that was the first time it was run from end to end, um, and a lot of, there's a lot of better runners out there now that have since done it. Um, I think what I got kind of lucky with the weather, I think as well. But it was probably more the fact that I wasn't an elite runner. I was just a good long-distance runner. I wasn't as precious about myself or time or um, or weather. You know, I don't mind if it pisses down rain all day. As long as I keep moving and I'm in wool and life's, life's okay. And, look, I had great support too. So I had my brother-in-law, Charlie, uh, running the, the, the camp, and I had a great friend, you know, running a camera. So... And then the great support from an American physiologist, Leslie Shooter. She's now living in Utah. Uh, I had just bloody good support. So I knew I could just push on each day and everything was okay. So if my body held up, it was going to work. Oh, so you didn't like, you didn't get, I know a lot of people will get like rhabdo with their kidneys or like their, their feet will start wearing away. You didn't get any of that? No, I had a bad leg. So I had a bad left leg, which really swelled up. It was really, it was like a tree trunk underneath my knee. But I could still shuffle on, you know, it was sort of, uh, it was never bad enough to stop. Um, it would just take an hour or so to warm up each morning and then you're okay, you know. Um, and I presume that's what long-distance runners get to. They get to the stage where the body is almost submissive and it's just used to it and can keep going. I think that uh, a lot of my favorite storytellers have uh, sort of like the echo of their favorite storyteller. So in the, in the world of travel and, and film, like Anthony Bourdain was my guy. Like I, I, I bring him up like every freaking episode. Uh, but he certainly wasn't shy about the fact that he purposefully emulated the storytellers that he loved. Uh, I'm wondering who uh, you find as, uh, you know, influential storytellers who have sort of colored the way that you tell stories. Um. Look, I've read uh, lots of amazing books, and I'm, you know, like like any good book, it gives you such brilliant visions of what took place or what is seemingly taking place. So I've got probably lots of those that I'm influenced by. I know that as a young man in in, in 1997 when it came out, I read I read John Krakow's In Thin Air, and in in terms of a of an adventure narrative that was just insanely uh, compelling, and that's why it swept the world and not just people who are interested in adventures. Uh, I did really think then, geez, I, I wouldn't mind being that person in that scene, you know? So that that kind of set, set me off. And I wasn't a big reader then, and I am more so now. So that kind of started me off, I suppose. But then I'd always looked for something that was a bit more simplistic and a bit more wholesome, like Walden, you know, mm. uh, Henry David Thoreau, and living these lives of, of living in a cabin by in the woods, uh, making shingles for your house and firewood for the winter and fishing and making your own bread. I think that's just, they were excellent. So th th lots of visions. Uh, and then in terms of filmmakers, 
they're not particularly outdoorsy, but think people like Wes Anderson, you know, they just yeah. make kooky, weird films, and they're often got these sort of outdoor aspects, you know, like Moonrise Kingdom. I just thought that was a cool film. Yeah. Know? Where did your like? Where did you learn your sort of making shingles types of skills? Like I saw you you had built your own house. You're making oars. Yeah, well, look, I grew up on a small farm. My dad was very handy. He, he built houses in his studio and all these fences and all the sheds, and I was always helping as a kid. But I think I learned my real craft um, by learning how to use tools properly, and it was my sister's boyfriend who taught me that. I did. I worked for him all through my university days in mm. the summers, and he was. I've never. He's a really good builder. You know, a real craftsman in that. Actually, he's probably not a great. Well, he is a craftsman, but he's just very fussy. His work ethic was intense, and he was bloody good at using tools. And if you know how to use tools, then you essentially can see anything and build it because you know how to actually translate what you're seeing into uh, a built form because you've got tools to help you. So my big thing now is that if you know how to use the tools, you can build anything. Yeah. Do you have any sort of uh, like holy grail projects that you'd like to build? Like, a, I don't know, a observatory or something? Yeah, well, I've, I'd love to build uh, my dream cabin in the woods, uh, uh, you know, and I mean with beautiful design and gorgeous timbers that have been reclaimed or made yourself or felled from the block, whatever. Uh, but for the last three months, I've made a cabin on the property I'm living at now um, as an extra office. So we'll move into that any day now. And that's a, that's a film that'll come out in the next sort of four or five weeks. Uh, so that's a real COVID project. And I did that with only what was on the block. So oh, I've been hoarding materials for years and I thought, all right, well, I can't go anywhere. I may as well make something while we're here and my my wife wants an office, so I built her one. Oh, wow. Is all of this, like all that we're discussing, uh, is all this going into the book? I saw that you have a book coming out in, uh, yeah. in a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, after I talk with you, actually, I'm talking to the publisher. So the first draft is being sent off and copy edited now and, I'll make some more tweaks and some more some more re- refinements, I suppose. But it's yeah, I never realised it took so long between when you finished a book and when it comes out. But uh, yeah, the Back Out Adventure comes out in March next year or February March. Um, you can buy online copies now with my autograph, although it's pretty expensive to send to the US. Uh. But it's all in there, and it, I think it's a pretty good read. There's some stuff that sort of just gets the job done, but I think there's some bloody good stuff too. Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah, you know you you. Your platform is one that in some ways is kind of, I don't know if interactive is the right word, but it connects people. I mean, sometimes it connects people in a horrible way, like people write terrible things in uh, YouTube comments. Um, But like social media platforms and uh, the media platforms that sort of cut out the middleman like you were talking about before and allow you to, to either own your intellectual property or you know, promote things the way you want to, they, they really let people connect. Um, I'm wondering like how often do people, uh, reach out to you or connect with you and say like, Hey, that, that project really inspired me to do that something similar or to, to change my life for this or that. Yeah, a lot. Um, in many respects, it's based on what kind of filters you have out there in the world to, to make that possible. My website always steers me to my email. So mm. If people want, it's very easy to get in contact with me, and yet people tend to just use Facebook or Insta, and I and I've blocked them as you know I, I don't really react or, or talk conversationally with people because it's just too much. Um, you know, I might get five or six Instagram messages a day of people wanting to engage in a conversation, and I just can't. I don't have the time, and they tend to ask very similar things. In saying that, I'm really. I, I don't like not doing those things because they're interesting and I like having conversations with people who give a damn. Um, and that's not just because they've reached out to me because of, you know, it's not grooming my ego. It's often people really do engage with a film and it, it changes their day or their hour or, or their week. And some, it, it seems to change their life. And you think, gee, that's huge. That's a huge seed of, of something you've given someone and that's a, it's the most powerful thing um, I can imagine in some respects is to inspire someone. I think it's amazing. And look, I'm really quite loyal to YouTube now because it's a, it's generally a positive platform, you know, it, and it's considered that too. The, you know, the research would say that it is the most positive of all social media platforms because mm. generally people just say good things. 
especially to the stuff that is good. Um, if it is crap, then it gets found out. But yeah. Is there ever a project that you were involved in that you were starting to film that just went disastrous and you're like, oh, we have to scrap this? Um, yeah, there's been a few <laughs> things I haven't seen a lot of day. <laughs> uh, but that's mainly because of my lack of scripting and lack of um, or time. You know, I did a I did a piece at Bondi in Sydney, the famous beach at Bondi, and that didn't make it to YouTube because I, it just didn't lack that lacked the story. It lacked mm. a, a better story, um, and other people. You know, it was a bit bow centric. Um, and Beans was damn hard too. You know, uh, the the human being that was very. You know, what is the what is the point of me telling a story about eating so many beans? There needed to be something more to it. And so that was hard to make because it wasn't lineal. It wasn't like going from A to B, uh, like a train line or running around the block. It wasn't. It didn't have a destination unless you put it there. So that was tricky. I think there's the, there's like the obvious interest with that. Like with the I saw you in a few interviews where like one of the first questions is always about like gas and output from uh, <laughs> yeah, from yeah. that project. Yeah, classic. And um, <laughs> I, uh, you know. I'm a pretty windy dude anyway. I think I've said it in a few places. Yeah. So it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't really uh, measure a whole lot higher on the Richter scale. Um, and it's a bit of a myth too, in a sense, because if you've, yeah, I don't know, but that's a bit of fun and, and why not? You know, it's true to some degree. Well, we've, we've teased people with uh, some stuff that's coming out. Usually as we, as I wind down, I say to people like, uh, you know, let's talk about your projects. So, I mean, a book and uh, an episode series about the lake sounds really incredible. Um, so we'll send everyone, everyone listening right now knows you can go to the show notes and there'll be a direct link to your YouTube channel, to your Instagram, to everything, all the socials so that people can explore these stories more uh, outside of the, of the hour we've spent together here today. Um, but I guess I, I was curious uh, and sort of a final thought here about, uh, I asked you about your dream project for something you build with your hands. A bucket list I kind of hate, but uh, do you have maybe like a, a holy grail or a bucket list in terms of an adventure or uh, like a, a physical project, something that you're immersing yourself in that you haven't done yet? Uh, I'm not sure. No, I, I don't have anything that's just sitting on the shelf that I've been yearning to do since I was 20. I just don't have it. Um, I'm lucky enough to have lots of smaller things that just come up and, and fill the gap of my desires, I suppose. I'm really lucky. Uh, and I've always thought, too, I've, I've never liked the, um, the concept of a trip of a lifetime or the experience of a lifetime. Hmm. Uh, that depresses me hugely because if you were to have that trip or have that experience, then what's next? Mm. You know, what do you do? Do you just do you crawl over and and you know you may as well shoot yourself? I don't know. It's, it's sort of there seems to be no tomorrow or no desire for tomorrow if you do these things that are the pinnacle all the time, or that's what you desire. So I have lots of wonderful experiences that just roll on. So. Um, in saying that too, there are, there are still ambitions out there that are always in front like a carrot. And so I've just got to remind myself that these are, these don't, don't whip yourself to get there, you know, give yourself some rewards along the way. Um, otherwise things just become, you know, you get to the end of a, a film coming out and, and you half killed yourself doing it. And you think, what's the point of that, dude? You've got to have fun while doing this stuff. And and, and that's, I'm really in a good space with my filmmaking and writing because I'm generally having fun. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I think we all, well, we all know someone who says, ah, once I do that thing, then I'll, I'll straighten out. Or once I do that thing, then I'll, I'll get the nine to five and I'll take things seriously and I'll do the sort of normal adult trajectory type of a thing, which does kind of make you think like, well, well, then that's it. Like there's nothing left after yeah. this. Yeah. That's a really yeah, good point. yeah. I, you know, when people say that on their wedding day that life will never be this good of that day, I, I think that's almost an insult to your wife or your husband. Yeah. <laughs> to say that this is it. This is as good as it gets. You know, I'm going to look as good as I am. The food's going to be as good as it's ever going to be. You're never going to have this many people you like in one room. Well, I think, well, what a crap way to think of it. You know, <laughs> it's, um, there's so much more goodness out there. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, definitely. Um, yeah, so I'm going to ask people to to go explore these stories a little bit further, give you a follow, um, you know, stay tuned to those really cool things that are coming out. And uh, I just want to say thanks again, Bo. Like this is it's really cool to get to learn a bit about you and to dive a little deeper in some of the stories I've been following. Uh, truly mean it when I say that what you're doing is really inspiring. And I, I get that it may not be the intention to sort of, uh, you know, touch people and, and change lives and inspire people, but... I mean, that is an effect of what you're doing. So uh, I, I think that's really cool. Well, thank you, Tim. Yeah, I've sort of stumbled upon it. It was It's always just a byproduct. You tell a good story and and, and people will take it in their own way. And, and I think that's um, it's been a really good uh, surprise of just storytelling. So thank you. And nice to chat, mate. And best of luck with the heat and, uh, and, the, and America and that this virus that's kicking around. Thanks, man. That is a wrap on episode number 184 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Closing in on 200 here, which is really exciting. I should do something, I don't know, extra cool for number 200, huh? Yeah. Hey, actually, reach out to me if you have a suggestion for episode 200 or an idea. I got to go big. I don't know what to do. I got to start thinking about this. I'm literally thinking about this while I record. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. Much thanks to Bo for joining me. Super cool guy. Really inspiring. Um, can't wait to, to check out his book when that comes out. And that uh, video series of him going down those rivers. That's going to be crazy. Kind of scary, actually. But I'm excited about it. All right, folks, wrapping it here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As always, please take care of each other. I'll catch you very soon.